Well, good morning. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. I'm privileged to be with you in this room today, and welcome to those of you joining us online. I just want to add my voice to the Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you in this room or wherever you may be joining us online. I want to say Happy Mother's Day to my own mom who will be tuning in from Amarillo, Texas. Everybody say sad. Yeah, it's sad because that's the ugliest part of the country to live in. And she reminds me of that almost every time that we talk. Um, and I want to shout out to my wife. Happy Mother's Day to her. She is actually out of the country today. Everybody say happy. happy. Yeah, not for me, but for her. And uh, it's this year she turned 40. So uh, as a kind of a surprise, uh, some family and friends, we all kind of pitched in and put in together for a special retreat for her for uh, her 40th birthday. So she's out of the country right now on that retreat. And how great that she gets to spend Mother's Day in some peace and quiet. And so uh, thankful for her. She is an incredible mother to our four children who um, uh, love her and connect with her and share with her all of the little things in their heart. And so very grateful for her today. We are going to continue our series, If This, Then That, and our passage is in Ephesians 5 today. And I did not pick the passage uh, it just happened to fall on today, and so we're going to talk about things like wives submit to husbands, children obey parents, and slave obey masters, so happy Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to go there, and I'm going to do my best to make it helpful for us in today, and maybe understand a little bit of the context and the backdrop that it was written in, and hopefully bring some redemption for what has potentially been misused. Uh, I want to start off kind of the big umbrella for this whole thing in which all of it will uh, fall under and after is Ephesians 5.1, which says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And so Paul starts off this passage in Ephesians 5 before he even gets to the family structure and family unit. And he says, everyone, regardless of who you are in the family, regardless of whether you have a family or not, you're, 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 or you're started a family, you're in a family of some way, uh, be imitators of God. Imitate God in your family. If Jesus has come to reveal the Father, then imitate him. And as you imitate him, you'll reveal the Father as well, and you'll be imitating the Father. And then slowly but surely, Christ will work in and through your core relationships. We all imitate somebody. We all have a leader to follow, somebody we look up to. Our youngest, uh, Isabella May, we call her Izzy, she's in fifth grade, and she had a project at school that she told me the other day as I was driving her to school. She said, I'm struggling with this project, Dad. And I said, well, what is it? And uh, I was hoping it wasn't math, because I'm good at about third grade math, and that's, it stops there. And she said, well, actually, the teacher said, why don't you pick a celebrity hero that you look up to? And I said, well, okay, well, what do you think? And she said, well, I don't have any. I was kind of like, well, I guess that's okay. That's fine with me. And uh, we sat on that for a little bit. She said, I'm having trouble figuring that out. So I came back to her the next day because I was trying to think, who does Izzy look up to in her life? And I looked at her in the room and I said, hey, I'm going to say something, but I want you to verify if it's true or not. She goes, all right. I said, did you have trouble with that because the person that you look up to is mom? And they wouldn't let you put that down. And she said, that's absolutely right. When they said, pick a celebrity hero that you look up to, I wrote down mom. And they said, well, you have to actually pick a celebrity hero. And she said, well, my mom is my celebrity hero. 
and she wrote this little note to her for Mother's Day, and my wife is unable to watch the um, sermon today, so it's not a spoiler. All right, she'll get this when she gets back. It says, Dear Mom, I'm so glad that you're in my life. I think of you every second of my life. When I'm sad, you give me comfort. When I'm lonely, you give me a good laugh. And when I need to talk, you give me you. And when I need to cry, you give me a shoulder to cry on. And when we moved, you were there for me. I love you more than you could imagine. Love, Isabella May. And in parentheses it says, your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. We all imitate somebody. We all look up to somebody. And Jeff did an incredible job last week talking about unity and harmony in the church, in the family of God. And I kind of want to follow that with this statement. What good is harmony in the church if there's not harmony in the home? Because the home and the family unit has always been a microcosm of what's going on with God's relationship to the family of God and the church. And if we all might just start to think about how can I imitate Christ in my core relationships, we might just see Christ be honored there and Christ be glorified. So if Christ has come into the world, and if Christ has entered our hearts, then Christ has entered our home. And if Christ has entered our home, then our home is centered in and on Christ. And let me just say this up front. We're not looking for perfect families. There are none. We all bring a level of brokenness and dysfunction to the table, and then we just compound that because we get married to another sinner, and we have little sinners, and it just kind of exponentially grows, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. I am not a perfect husband. I am not a perfect father. Simply ask my family, but please don't, because they'll tell you. And so we're free to take the pretense off. We're free to stop pretending because God doesn't want a fake family, but a faithful family. Amen? And on the other hand, God doesn't want a fruitless family, but a fruitful family. Even if it's just a little bit, He wants us to bear some fruit. So, I'm going to make my statements in what I hope are very broad things that everyone can grasp onto no matter what season or state of life that you're in, and then I'll let the passage do the work on the specificity. Uh, But Christ reorders the dynamic of our core relationships. He reorders the dynamics of our core relationships. And what I want to say is this, if we have a new allegiance, then we will have mutual respect for one another in the home. If we have a new allegiance, then we will have mutual respect for one another in the home. Sometimes I do wedding ceremonies, and we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we often read those passages. And one of the things that I say is, you know, you will leave your family of origin, and you will cleave or cling to your new family. And what that means is that your primary identity, you are no longer son or daughter. You are no longer um, sister or brother. You are primarily, first and foremost, husband and wife, but there's something actually even greater than that. There's a greater allegiance. So Paul says this, you're not even just primarily husband and wife now. You are primarily sons and daughters of God. And the people in your household and around you are primarily not husband and wife, not children, but they are sons and daughters of God. So treat one another with the respect that you would give a son or a daughter of the living God. 
In our house, it looks a little bit like this, uh, that we try to treat one another with respect and kindness, and we listen to each other. Obviously, sometimes that, that respect is broken, and it turns into disrespect. Um, and so if that's any of us, we try to make that right, and parents included. So just the other day, I had to discipline my son because he definitely needed to be disciplined, um, and I did it, but my tone was too harsh. And I'm a very sensitive person to other people's tone with me. And I'm sensitive to the tone that I use with other people. And I knew it. I knew when I disciplined him, I was like, the discipline was fair and just and true, but my tone was too harsh and I didn't like how I said that to him. So I, I slept on it and then I woke up and we both kind of calmed down and I brought him close to me and I said, son, I love you very much. And that discipline was fair and true, but I did not like the way that I talked to you in that. It was too harsh. Would you please forgive me? And some of you may say, well, aren't you afraid that your kids might, you know, mistake you as a friend? No, I'm absolutely not afraid of that. What I would be more concerned about is that my kids would hear me say something but not see me show something. And that they, if I want to model for them, if I want to see some type of behavior in them, which would hopefully be confession and humility and repentance and seeking reconciliation, then I have to show that because as you and I both know, things are way more caught than they are taught. They're way more caught than they are taught. I heard a what, so I was just going to say it again. <laughs> like a what? It means this. It means people model our behavior more than they model our words. And if we set an example for people, they're going to follow our example. And in our home, we try to mutually respect each other going forward. So, what does this mean on a more specific level in some of these roles? And the first thing is this, is if Christ has entered our home and can transform our home, then first and foremost, drudgery can be transformed into delight. Drudgery can be transformed into delight. Things that we are expected to do, things that we might be culturally expected to do, things that are in our roles that we might be expected to do, that can actually be transformed into delight. Listen to Ephesians 5.22, and I'll read this and Ephesians 6 together. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Now, I don't have time, we don't have time to go all into the background of some of these things, but slavery in the Old Testament with the Israelites and even in the New Testament in the Greco-Roman world and then in our modern-day context just recently in the West, they're all very different things. They're very, very different things, and the Bible's not condoning that here in this passage. Tim Keller, as an aside, just does, does a wonderful job about a contemporary uh, uh, context for what feels like a modern-day experience of slavery, and he talks about work. Like, work can feel like that. Like, you have an authority over you. You have to do what the authority says to do. You have a boss, or you might be a boss, and you have people under you. And so that could be somewhat applicable to that today. And one of the things that we have to say about this passage, and there's another one in Colossians, about wives and children and workers, let's just say, is we have to say that in some way, in many ways, this passage has been misinterpreted and misapplied, and it has caused harm misinterpreted and misapplied, and it has caused harm. There are people who have used this passage to endorse physical, spiritual, or emotional abuse, and there's no place for that. 
There are people who have used this passage to endorse child abuse. There's no place for that. That's not what this text is saying. And we have to say that in the name of God, some harm has been done. And yet, we also have to say that there might be an abuse of that, but that doesn't mean there isn't a proper use of the passage. Just because it has been misused doesn't mean that it's not saying something that could be redemptive and could be helpful. One of the things that we have to understand is this. Martin Luther, the great reformer um, in the 1500s, called, called these things household codes, hastafeln, like house tables. Like how do we have conversations about the family? And in fact, uh, the Greeks wrote a lot about the family unit and the family structure. And one of the things that Paul is doing is he's actually dignifying women, children, and slaves. And you say, well, how is he dignifying them? Because when the Greeks wrote about the family structure, they did not address women, children, and slaves. They only addressed men. And so Paul is saying, I want to dignify under this new society, the church, I want to dignify those who have become believers and address them and not necessarily give them a new behavior because guess what? That was already expected in that day. The pater familia the ultimate authority of the house, the man of the house who was husband and master and father, he had ultimate authority and his rule was without question. So that behavior was, they were already going to submit, everyone was already going to obey, they were already going to do that. So Paul's not aiming at a new behavior, but he's inviting them to some dignity with a new motivation. Now you can have this vision of, I don't just relate to you as an authority, I get to relate to Jesus in and through you. I get to relate to Christ in and through my core relationships, and now my ultimate allegiance is to him. It's to Jesus. And some critics of the Bible might say, well, why didn't, why, why, why didn't Paul and why didn't the authors of the Scriptures just totally turn this thing around and say, this is all a misuse, this is terrible subjugation, why don't they just call for a social revolution? And the answer is actually quite easy. Because in Rome, if you were to raise suspicion that would have, uh, that would have questioned the authority structure or the values in the Roman Empire, your movement would have been snuffed out immediately. Immediately. So Paul is writing in the confines of his context, and he's not calling for a social revolution, but a subtle subversion. Not a social revolution, but a subtle subversion. Subtly undermining some of the misuse and abuse of the power that is. He's not trying to overthrow authority. He's trying to say this is what it could look like and be redeemed like in Christ. So what exactly does this look like for us today? I don't know. I think we can say what it doesn't look like, and maybe I'll give you a picture of what it looks like for us, but a lot of this, you're going to have to figure out your own dynamics. I think for us, it looks like a little bit of a dance. There is a, uh, years ago, me and Courtney went on a, a date to a place in St. Louis called the Kitchen Conservatory. And you look up uh, their calendar and you see what they're going to cook for the next month and what's going on. And you make reservations and you go there and they provide all the food and they provide the recipe and they provide the chef. But you're making it. You're making the food. But then the second part is what got Courtney really excited because she's always begged me to do this with her is that they provide dance lessons. And so... 
Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, we got to do that. Uh, uh, so we went and we, we made some Italian chicken and some risotto and some dessert, and it was wonderful. And that night, uh, we, we obviously let it kind of digest a little bit before the lesson started, but it was swing dance. It was swing dance. Yeah, and that, that worked out great. We've tried like salsa and samba, like my hips don't move like that. It just doesn't work that well. But the swing dance, like we could, we could work on. And as we were learning this dance and we were dancing together, there's an instructor helping us out. We did pretty good. But here's the thing with almost any dance. There has to be some type of lead. And yet the lead has to consider the person on the other side. And it's a working together. It's an ebb and flow. It's a give and take. Yeah, somebody's got a lead, but that lead is also looking and listening to the other. And how does this work for you? And how can we go here? And how, is, how are the movements? I'm working together with you. We're working on creating a beautiful dance, not one of a doormat, not one of subjugation, not one of I'm in charge, get behind me but one of let's work together to create a dance so that the watching world might have something beautiful to see. When we do what's expected of us, it's our duty. And that can, be, that can turn into drudgery. When we do what's expected of us as a way of honoring Jesus, though, out of that core relationship and new allegiance, drudgery can be transformed into delight. One of my favorite Christian authors, Brendan Manning, he, um, not, not with us anymore, but he went to the East to sit under another spiritual teacher and learn some things. And they were eating together and the meal had closed up and uh, it was time to wash dishes. And Brendan said, okay, I'll go wash the dishes. And the other teacher said, no, 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 you don't know how to wash the dishes. And Brendan was offended. He said, I know how to wash dishes. I'll get up and I'll go wash the dishes. And the teacher said, no, no, you guys in the West don't know how to wash dishes. You're always doing something so that you can get on to the next thing. My concern is that you would just go wash dishes so that we could get on to dessert. When you're washing dishes, you have to be present and wash the dishes in and of themselves because that is a sacred act. You don't know how to wash the dishes, but let me teach you. And when we are fully present in whatever we might be doing, in whatever menial task that we get to do every day, we're doing them in and of themselves as a sacred act of worship, that drudgery can be transformed into delight. Secondly, resentment is transformed into respect. Resentment is transformed into respect. Ephesians 6.1, every parent's favorite verse. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. It's quoting the Ten Commandments and then adding the promise onto it, so that it might go well with you. Children, obey your parents. It's most likely that it's not talking to little kids, even though that can be our context today, but it's likely that these were adult children as well, okay? So we're just going to say this is a both-and catch-all. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Um, when, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a few things that we have to understand about uh, what's going on here and what's going on in our own context. Uh, my wife was out of town, or is out of town, and so the first day that she goes out of town, I called a family meeting. And I met with all four of our children who ranged from 17 down to 10. And I pulled a Jack Sparrow on them and I said, there's some things a man can do and some things a man can't do. I'm going to need some help around here for the next several weeks. And I said to them, here's what I can do. I can make sure that you have clothes. I can make sure that you get to your activities on time and that you get to school. 
I can get you breakfast in the morning and I can make sure that you have dinner in the evening, but I'm going to need you to pack your lunches and I'm going to need uh, the two oldest to every night make sure that all the dishes are off the counter, that all the dishes are in the dishwasher and the dishwasher started because when I wake up early the next morning to start the day, I don't need to mess with that. I need to get everything ready and it needs to be clean. And they all looked at me and it was, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, dad, we'll help out. We're here for you. We're all going to be in on this. We'll pull our weight. And it worked for a day. Until it didn't. And that next morning after that, I woke up and I go into the kitchen and and making coffee and I'm going to start breakfast and I look around and there's dishes everywhere and the dishwasher's not done. And so I have to call a small other family meeting, you know, that type, the meeting after the meeting. And I had to say to them, hey guys, like, uh, and gentle and kind, you know, this didn't work. You got to hold this up and we got to make this happen. I need everybody to do this. And uh, I I, might have gave them some monetary motivation if they did do their job correctly and had it done. And I've had to kind of call call them back on several occasions on some of the agreements that that we made in the beginning. And they've done wonderful for the most part. But occasionally, sometimes you get the eye roll. You get the huffing and puffing. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Some of you adults still do this. You get the complaining, you get a little bit of complaining and blame. well, what about them? And what are they going to do? Why do I have to do it? You know what I'm saying? And one of my favorite uh, psychologists today talks about we have to be big enough to take some of the resentment of our kids. Because if we parent them well, there's going to be a little resentment from them. If we set structure and boundaries for them and we tell them like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't eat ice cream at 11 o'clock at night after you've already had a bowl of ice cream right? And I know that you did that because you left the dishes on the counter in the morning after and I saw the leftover ice cream, right? You're going to get a little pushback and a little resentment and we have to be big enough to take it. But sometimes there's an unhelpful resentment that children often experience and it's for one of two reasons usually. It's because our parenting has been underwhelming or it's been overwhelming. It's been underwhelming or it's been overwhelming. It's been overwhelming because maybe we are tempted to be helicopter parents. You know, helicopter parents with kids that are helicopter kids. They're the ones that when they're getting ready for the pool, they got floaties here. They got a life vest here. They got a ring here. And then maybe they're on a raft as they go into the pool and the parent's still standing by the edge of the water, like waiting to jump in for little Johnny, even though Johnny's like 12, right? (laughs) Nowadays, I think they call them snowplow parents. Snowplow parents are are like this. If their kid doesn't make the team or if their kid doesn't get the grade or get into the orchestra or the choir, then the the snowplow parent goes up to the school, snowplows away, snowplows their way through the authority structure and like, hey, my kid, you got to make this or I'm going to throw a fit type thing. That's overwhelming. It's overbearing. And sometimes that causes resentment for the child. But it can also be underwhelming. It's underwhelming often for the child because they want presence, they want attentiveness, they want someone to delight in them. And often one of the greatest temptations today is to allow screens to raise children, to be raised by YouTube and social media, to be raised by the innovation techs in Silicon Valley. And I can guarantee you and assure you, people in Silicon Valley do not care about the well-being of your family. And we want our children to thrive and to know that we care about them. So that's a balance as well. And maybe we're adults here 
and adult children in this room, and maybe you've got some of that resentment built up. Hopefully, hopefully, if it's just a natural resentment, they come back to you like at 20 or 30 years old, and they're just like, man, I, I didn't realize how hard it was to parent. Thank you. You've done a wonderful job. But sometimes if we're adults and adult children and we have that resentment, it's our responsibility to pursue that reconciliation. It's our responsibility to go and have that difficult conversation to pursue unity. It's our responsibility to offer forgiveness because let's not forget, forgiveness is the engine that makes this whole thing run. It's our responsibility to imitate that aspect of Jesus. And by God's grace, hopefully, that resentment can be transformed into respect. Lastly, self-service is transformed into sacrificial service. Self-service is transformed into sacrificial service. Remember, these are broad for all of us, and then the passage gets specific. I'm going to read all these together for dramatic purpose, even though they don't fall together in the passage, okay? Listen to this. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Notice the order that I've addressed it. Notice the order that the passage addresses it. Wives, children, slaves or workers, and then the second party in each one is always going to be husbands, fathers, business owners. Husbands, fathers. Why is that? Why is that? You see, Paul is trying to show that he's not just dignifying women and children and workers. He's not just lifting them up and saying, you could have a new motivation as a believer. He's also doing something to the authority figures and laying a weight upon them that would have been totally countercultural. This would have sounded very strange to the head of the household. Listen to what Aristotle wrote in the third century. Household management falls into departments corresponding to the parts of which the household it's in its turn is composed. Listen to the order. Master, slave, husband, wife, father, children. Who is addressed first in those? The authority figure, the head of the household. Guess what Paul does in here and in Colossians? He completely inverts it on its head. He's doing that on purpose to say, look, the gospel is subverting something. It's lifting people up and it's laying a new weight on those in power with responsibility. This would have been so countercultural for the husband to hear in that day. Listen to a few historians' take on it. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. Elsewhere. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. One other historian says, a girl was completely under her father's, a wife completely under her husband's power. She was the property. Her life was one of legal incapacity, which amounted to enslavement of her status and was described as imbecilitas, which is where we get the word imbecile from. 
So for Paul, against that backdrop, to say to the head of the house, your job is now, as a believing husband, to turn and turn towards your family and tend to it and lift up your wife and encourage her and love her and sacrifice her and not provoke and not exasperate your children, but parent them with grace and truth and gentleness and to treat the people under your authority as if they had dignity and they mattered and to respect them and be fair with them. This would have stung. The weight of the sting of the command is on the head of the household. That's what he's getting at. And some, sometimes we want to, you know, we want to, you know, we want to use that a little bit. I'm the head of the house. Head of the household, I'm in charge, right? Do you know what that means for God? Head of the household means this. If there's any challenges in the family, guess who he talks to first? That's what that means for God. Paul is lifting weight for those who have experienced oppression and Paul is laying on weight for those who have been potentially oppressed. He's not trying to just deconstruct the authority structure and yet he is trying to say this is how the gospel transforms the dynamic in our core relationships. It's not about what I can get. It's about what I can give. It's not about how you can serve me and what you can do for me. It's about how, as I imitate Christ, can I lay down my life and my strength for you and seek your flourishing and betterment. And as a byproduct, I will get to experience the same. I was on my back porch the other day, and I was um, doing something that I've done for many years, and I like to have my solitude in the mornings. I get up early, I drink coffee, I either listen to music, or I meditate on Scripture, or have some spiritual book that I might be reading, whatever it is. And I was sitting there, and it was a glorious, beautiful time, because it was on the backyard, the birdies were out, it was very quiet, it was very peaceful, and all of a sudden, our youngest, who gets up uh, earlier than the other, she kind of looked through the back door, opened it up, and she looks at me and says, Dad, will you make waffles? And in that moment, what I wanted to say was, no, I'm having a wonderful time alone in peace and quiet, and I would like for you to go back inside. I don't really care what you do, but I would like to be left alone. And then I thought about this passage, and I thought to myself, somebody in my house needs served. So I said, all right, Izzy, give me just a few minutes, three to five minutes. I'll come in, and I'll make you some waffles. This is how Jesus transforms the home. He enters into our heart and slowly but surely He begins to change us. So we're using our strength to serve others. We're using our gifts and skill set to lift others up and to try to understand them and to get in their world and to listen to them. We're respecting each other mutually. It's a dance. It might look different for you than it does for us, and that's okay. You're figuring it out as you go. But if Christ has entered into our hearts and He's entered into our home, things that are expected of us, that drudgery can be transformed into delight. That resentment that we might have experienced and might still feel the burn of, that can be transformed into respect. And self-service can be transformed into sacrificial service. I just want to leave us with one thought as we go today. 
I don't want us to think about, oh, well, who, who, whose role is that and what should they have been doing? And if they would do that, then I would do this. We're not going to get trapped in that sort of thinking. It's just one simple question. How can I imitate Christ in my family relationships? How can I? What's my responsibility? How can I imitate Christ in my core relationships? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this text. Thank you so much for the beauty of it and the redemption of it. It would have sounded completely strange to people in that culture. Maybe it sounds strange to us. Father, though it's been caused, though it's been used to cause harm and damage, I pray that you would use it to bring healing, to bring peace, to bring dignity. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we try to flesh this out in our our homes and in our daily lives. Father, maybe there's difficult and uncomfortable conversations ahead, but maybe those have the power to produce fruit of peace and unity. I pray that you would help us lean into those places and press into the discomfort so that we might see you reign supreme in our hearts and in the hearts of those we love and cherish. Thank you so much for these precious people. Thank you again for our mothers and all mothers represented in whatever way and shape and form. May you bless them richly today. We thank you for their compassion and their kindness and their understanding. We thank you for their sacrificial service. May they be blessed richly because of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.